You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. What I want to do for us this morning before preaching verse 17 is I just want to read the context, um, verses 10 through 20. So if you'd follow along with me. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we ask that you would come and that you would speak through your word to us this morning. Lord, each of us comes here this morning as weak, weak vessels. Some of us weak in the ways that we think we're enough, and some of us weak in the way that we think that we may not make it to tomorrow. And I don't know the hearts and the minds of every person that walks in this room today, but you do. And you know the work that you're doing in building each person in this room. And Father, I pray that you would come and that you would reveal Christ and all of his glory and all of his love and all of your love for us. I pray, Father, that you would bring the, the message of the cross where salvation was provided for us, and the message of the empty tomb where the power of life through Jesus beat Satan's sin in the grave. And God, I pray that you would come and through this passage that you would just reveal more and more of yourself to us. And I pray, Father, that you would remove any spiritual hindrances that would stop us from hearing from you. But we trust that your word is powerful. And we trust that you, Father, are powerful. And we ask that you would come and speak in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. I want to start us off with a question. It's similar to the question I started off with last week. So you might write this question down. Here's the question. What does your attitude look like today? What does your attitude look like? Now, before you answer the question, I just want you to write the question down. Before you answer the question, what I want you to do is I want you to, to just listen for a few moments. I want to try to build some categories for us to answer that question, because it's a broad question, right? And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't use that question in ways that I didn't intend, and if he chooses to do so, fine, so be it. But I just want to help build some categories before you begin to answer the question. So think about the question, what does your attitude look like today as you walked in the door? Because in these verses that I've just read, what Paul is doing is he's giving his instructions to Christians, right? The church at Ephesus is full of Christians, and Paul is giving them instructions to what? To take a stand. 
He's instructing them to take a stand as warriors who are living in a spiritual war zone that Paul calls this present darkness. So I'm, I'm laying some foundation to answer the question. And the foundation begins with who's Paul, ta- who, who's Paul talking to and, 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 and why, right? Well, what's he saying? His instructions all along to the Ephesian church have had much more to do with attitude over action. I want you to think about that. There is a, there is a difference here. Like Paul, as he gives his instructions to the Ephesian church, his instructions have had much more to do with attitude over action. Now what we do is important for sure. But how we do what we do is more important. Tracking with me? What we do is important, but how we do what we do is more important. Action without proper attitude can produce devastating results. Now you might ask the question, how does attitude affect action? Now you, you might notice, you might say, Joe, you asked us a question, you haven't answered the question, you're not letting us answer the question. It's okay, just hold on to the question, ask this other question, and continue to build the category for us. How does attitude affect action? So think with me for a minute about how my attitude affects my activity. I'm called to be an active participant in this spiritual war zone, right? Called to be an active participant. There's no such thing as sitting on the sidelines. There's no such thing as retreat in the Christian life. And Paul lists seven pieces of armor for us. They're vitally Absolutely vital for us, not vitally, because I don't even know if vitally is a word, so they're just absolutely vital for us. You guys are tracking with me. The seven pieces of armor that Paul lists are absolutely vital for us to get straight. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. These are all pieces of armor that I'm called to put on, right? and to take a stand against the spiritual forces of evil in this present darkness, in this day of evil, Paul says. The question is, how does my attitude affect my active participation in taking a stand in this spiritual battle? See, if I believe that the battle depends on my activity, then my attitude is an attitude of what? Self-reliance. If I believe that it depends on me to put it on. Self-reliant, self-sufficiency. And what's the end result of that kind of attitude? The end result of that kind of attitude is what? Legalism? Moralism? Truth will become relative. Righteousness will be earned. Peace will be circumstantial. Faith will be fabricated. Salvation will be experiential. The Bible will be a moralistic list. Prayer will be a means to get what I want. And you see how... Action without the proper attitude can produce devastating results. The devastating results of this this kind of an attitude slash action dysfunction, like I said earlier, ultimately becomes legalism and moralism. And don't we have enough of that in the church today? Don't we have enough of that where you just you come in, you get pounded on for a while, you get given a, a you know a so-called list of seven good things to go do, and you get kicked in the butt out the door. Go do those things, and then somewhere in the middle of the week, don't you realize, crap, I can't do this. 
I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced that. Maybe you're hearing like, no, actually, I'm fine. I can do the seven things my pastor tells me to do every week and the Bible tells me to do. Well, okay, well, then we should have a different conversation. I'm just I'm going to say I think that the experience in Scripture is that you cannot do this. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. Now, I do think that in the power of Christ and the power of the resurrected tomb, you and I are enabled and empowered to then live differently. But I do think that we have a tendency to get this backwards, and that's where legalism and moralism comes from, right? Now, think about the book of Ephesians, too. I want to take us through a little bit of a journey. I'm still going to come back to the original question, what was your attitude today? But I want to lay foundation before we answer the question, okay? So think about um, just the book of Ephesians itself. There's three layers to the message of Ephesians. You'll uh, see a nice picture of a juicy sandwich on the screen in front of you. Three layers to the message of Ephesians. Paul himself was a fierce opponent. If you've read anything from Paul in the scriptures, you'll find that he was a fierce opponent of legalism and moralism. Why? Because he knew that our gospel doesn't rest on what we do. It rests rather on what Christ has done. Not on what we can do, but what Christ has done. Even the flow of Paul's thoughts throughout this letter to the Ephesians has testified to this. Our gospel doesn't rest on what we can do. It rests on what Christ has done. Don't forget that as Paul writes, he began by laying a foundation of gospel identity. This is why on your screen, it may throw some of you through a loop to see that it's upside down. Right? Chapters 1 through 3 are on the bottom. So some of you might be going, this is not right. You can't list things backwards. Actually, I'm just laying it that way because that's the foundation. That's the way Paul did it. Chapters 1 through 3 would have been gospel identity. And what he did was he hammered home the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ Jesus. This is context for what we're studying today. Chapters 4 through 6, verse 9, what Paul did was he added a second layer, right? The meat, you might say. Second layer of action and activity that should flavor the walk of an obedient believer. So don't forget that that kind of obedience in the second layer it's absolutely impossible without the proper foundation, right? You don't get the first piece of bread in there. The meat at this point is meaningless when it comes to this message. Action without identity is meaningless. I should say action without Christ-like identity is meaningless. So you cannot walk if you have not first been seated. You only walk like Jesus because you actually belong to Jesus. Now in chapters, uh, in, in, this, in this final portion that we're in now, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, what Paul does is he adds the third layer, the third and the top layer, right? The final layer to his instructions. No idea. That was creepy though. <laughs> Paul adds a third and final layer to his instructions, right? And that third layer to the Ephesian church is these instructions, this third layer that he gives to us flavored with a theme of taking a stand. So first you have gospel identity, then you have gospel activity, and then you have gospel what? Attitude. And all three of them fit together. First, we belong to Jesus. Second, we walk like Jesus. And then third, we stand with the attitude of Jesus. Now, ask this question again. What's my attitude when I walked in here this morning? Think about how your attitude affects your actions. Okay? 
Drill down into this with me for a second and track with me. A person's attitude says an awful lot about who they believe God is, doesn't it? A person's attitude says a lot about who we believe God is and who that person believes they are. What does your attitude look like today? Is your attitude an attitude of defeat or victory? Is it an attitude of despair or joy? Is it an attitude of obedience or rebellion? Now, those are the, those are the three categories I want us to kind of think about and build out of. Where is your attitude at on the pendulum swing? You'll see kind of a pendulum swing between both, and you can kind of rate yourself between the two. Is my attitude either uh, A, victory or defeat? Is it joy or despair? Where am I at? Is it obedience or disobedience? Where am I at in these three categories when it comes to my attitude? And my prayer is that as we study, my prayer is that as we study this passage, that your attitude would be changed this morning, that your attitude would be transformed, that your attitudinal needle would move away from defeat to victory and away from despair to joy and away from disobedience or rebellion to Christ-centered obedience. That, that's my hope and my prayer. My hope and my prayer is that your attitude would be transformed by the message of the cross and the power of the empty tomb. That's my prayer. So look at, look at verse 17 again. In verse 17, we see two pieces of armor, right, that have been supplied to us. They have the ability to radically alter and transform our attitudes. So Paul says, stand therefore, right? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now these two pieces of weaponry, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, they're meant to do what? They're meant to change my attitude. The helmet of salvation is meant to change my attitude from a works or a performance-based perspective into a grace and mercy-based perspective. And the sword of the Spirit is meant to change my perspective from a mind that is set on a list of rules into a mind that is set on hearing from God and knowing God personally. You see the, the, the nuance there? With both of these perspective changes, what happens is my attitude is transformed on a focus on what I need to do into a focus on what Christ has already done, which then does what? Enables me to stand. If your attitude is off, you can't stand. But think about your attitude again. Come back to that original question. What's your attitude this morning? What is your attitude towards your job? Or your coworkers. Like these are places of practicality for us, right? Like theology should be practical. What is your attitude towards your job or your coworkers or your family or your friends or your kids or your marriage or your community or, or maybe the world that you, we live in for that matter? What's your attitude towards those different spheres? I would actually encourage you to take the three categories victory, defeat, Despair, joy, rebellion, obedience, 
and then apply all three of those categories through the use of questions at home in your own time, maybe in your gospel community, and apply them to these other categories, these practical categories, right? Um, how am I doing in terms of living in either defeat or victory in my marriage? How am I doing in terms of living in uh, despair or joy in my job? How am I doing at living in um, rebellion or obedience in terms of raising my kids? Like you could just apply those and ask questions, journal about them, have conversations about them, ask God to move you into a place of holiness. See, for me, and I would assume for, for many of you too, when my job becomes all about my paycheck, think about it, when my job becomes all about my paycheck, or, or, or when my coworkers become competition, you ever deal with that? Or, or if my family members become a nuisance, or if my friends become just a commodity, Maybe my kids become just frustrating. My marriage becomes tiresome. The community that I'm involved with becomes all about what I want to consume. My worldview becomes all about establishing a better way of life. Then what happens to my attitude? My attitude is shifting away from what Christ has done onto what I can do. And then what I can do becomes the supreme goal for living. And when my performance falls short, then what happens? I live in defeat, despair, and rebellion. Tracking? So can you see how my attitude affects my actions? Can you see how my attitude can result in actions that are not gospel-centered? Now, they may look the same on the outside because religiosity, moralism, legalism looks the same on the outside, looks, looks holy. Think about the Pharisees, man. They had it down. The Bible was memorized. Better than most Christians today. But who did Jesus have the biggest problems with? Those guys, right? We're not Pharisees in any way, are we? Well, that's hard to hear, isn't it? How, how easy is it for us to be Christians for 15 minutes and then believe that we've got this down and it all depends on us? God set us free from that. I pray that God would set us free from that. Not only as a church family, but as a nation, that God would set us free from that. So when I live in this kind of deception... My attitude shifts into a place where I seek salvation from my fear or my doubt or my worry or my loneliness through what? My performance. When I live in this kind of deception, my, my attitude shifts into a place where I wield the sword of the Spirit as a list of do's and don'ts, and the Christian life becomes merely what? Performance, not rest. This is a me-centered attitude shift that I believe has affected the American church and infected the American church. And if we're not careful, we'll do ours as well, if it hasn't already. <coughs> now, this is the subtle me-centered attitude shift that happens when my worship, think about worship again, when my worship of the perfect creator gets traded for the worship of broken creation. In, in that place, I begin to live in defeat, despair, and rebellion instead of victory, joy, and obedience. And alternatively, Alternatively, if I say it in a positive way, I can also live in a false sense of victory and a false sense of joy and a false sense of obedience as I rely on my relational and circumstantial list of rules and experiences. But even that kind of victory, that kind of joy, that kind of obedience, what's it based on? 
based on me, my performance, and my circumstances. And that becomes short-lived. It's not lasting. It's short-lived when I fail and my circumstances change. This is why I think oftentimes Christians struggle with a lack of Holy Spirit, gospel-centered power to change in our lives. So think about it this way, maybe. Let me make this practical again. If I'm not making enough money at work, then what happens? I might live in defeat, or I might live in despair, right? Not doing enough. But then if I get a raise, what happens then? Don't I experience momentary victory and happiness? Well, I got a raise, got a little more money, right? Momentary, though. Doesn't that sound familiar? You might take this same practical category and build it out this way. If my coworker, oh boy, if my coworker gets a raise and I don't get a raise, then what do you live in? Defeat and despair. What if you both get a raise? Right? So you both get a raise and you're pretty sure that he actually deserves the raise. As much as you do, we play the comparison game. Um, they might live in momentary victory and happiness again. It's kind of a sick cycle, isn't it, that we can easily get caught in? I think as we grow, we, we, we do better at these things for sure. But I think at some level that, that cycle is still there when it's focused on our performance, not on what God has done. And the only thing that can transform my attitude, the only thing that can transform your attitude is not to say, go do more, right? That's not the way we see change and transformation take place in our lives. The only way that we see transformation happen in our attitude is the message of the cross and the empty tomb. You see, the message of the cross is is the the message of the most selfless act to ever happen. That the message of the empty tomb is the message of the most powerful event in all of history. So, think about the helmet of salvation now. Think about the helmet of salvation in light of the cross and the empty tomb. See, through the cross and the empty tomb, my mind is protected and renewed. It's protected and renewed by the helmet of salvation. So, one of the things that Satan wants to do in his war against you and I is to deceive us. A liar and a father of all lies. No truth in him. Wants to deceive you into questioning the security of your salvation. I'm going to hit on this today. I think this is really important. This is something that's infected the church, I believe, in really negative ways. He wants you to question the security of your salvation. He wants you to always be thinking about how you might either lose your salvation through your works or... On the flip side, how you might actually secure your salvation through your works. But can you see how this attitude could affect your actions? That your mind becomes like a yo-yo in those moments as you like vacillate back and forth, right? Fear of losing what, what, what I could never lose or excitement over earning what I could actually never earn. It's a pendulum swing between the pride of despair and the pride of arrogance. I have despair. Poor pitiful me, I might sin bad enough for God to walk away from me again. Pride of arrogance. Oh, if I could just do a few more good things today, I think I'd probably be okay. I'm in the range to be saved. See how you get a chink in your helmet? If your attitude on this was wrong, if your understanding and belief on this was wrong, it would affect your behavior. The truth that I need to hear and that I think you need to hear 
from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, from Philippians 1, 6, verse 20, and, and, and verse 28, is that you cannot earn what cannot be unearned. You cannot unearn what cannot be earned. If you are saved, according to the Scriptures, then you are saved by what? Not by your prayer, not by your decision. You are saved by grace through faith alone, period. And the work that God begins in His children, according to Philippians, He does not discontinue. God doesn't stop the work until it is complete. God doesn't start a project of salvation in you and then discard you for a better project. He doesn't get bored and He never gives up. If God has begun a work of salvation in you, then you can rest assured that He will continue that work in you until you are finally complete in His presence in heaven. You see, here's the thing that we learn about God Himself from Isaiah 59. God Himself wears a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. Isn't that interesting? He actually wears a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. And in that passage in Isaiah 59, He goes to war on your behalf. And if you tie this to the cross, he goes to war on our behalf through the cross and the empty tomb. God alone is the one responsible for securing your eternal salvation. He will hold you secure. He will hold you sure and steadfast when your heart and your mind, your soul are being tossed about on the winds of waves of circumstantial and demonic chaos. This is what God does. The Bible is meant to turn our attention to the work of God, not the work of man. You and I are not the hero of the Bible. God is. I have to remind myself of this all the time because when I go to the Bible, I'm a selfish person. I want to make myself into the hero. <clears throat> As I walk out this Christian life, my mind is protected. My mind is renewed by the truth that the blood that washed away my sins and defeated Satan cannot be wiped out by my sin. If the blood wiped out my sin, but if my sin could wipe out the blood, then the blood is powerless. Think about that. If you belong to Jesus, the helmet of salvation has been placed on your head by the nail-scarred hands of a Savior, and it's secure and in place. So be encouraged in that. Your father loves you. He went to battle to win you. He beat your enemies, and he will never give up on you. That's what we need to know about salvation. Because there's enough false gospels out there today that preach against that. Number two, think about the sword of the Spirit in light of the cross and the empty tomb. Think about the sword of the Spirit in light of the cross and the empty tomb. See, through the cross and the empty tomb, my heart, my mind, my life, they're all renewed and reoriented by the very words of the living God. Think about the power of that. My heart, my mind, my life, reoriented by the very words of the living God. That's the sword of the Spirit. <clears throat> and there's nothing that Satan loves more than to twist what God has said. There's nothing that Satan loves more than to deceive you into leaving your sword in its sheath where it will present absolutely no threat to the enemy. 
There's absolutely nothing more than what Satan would love to do than to get you to leave your sword on a shelf, on a table, in a bookshelf, along, along over here where you don't ever look at it. When was the last time you opened the Bible and just basked in the power of the Word of God? And just let it get at you. Or have you left it in a sheath where it presents no power? Now, go back to those places. What's your attitude today towards the Word of God? Victory or defeat? Joy or despair? Obedience or disobedience? What is your attitude towards the Word of God? See, God's Word is a powerful weapon when it's unleashed. When God's Word is clenched in the hand, and I'll say clenched in the hand, and if you could, there's a picture on the internet, I don't think I included it in the, in the uh, outline, but there's a picture on the internet of all five fingers, actually, I'm sorry, four fingers and one thumb. Somebody's going to probably come and set me straight on that later, so I'll just say it now. Four fingers and one thumb, right? When the Bible is clenched between all five, I want to lose my place in the Bible, so give me a second here, okay? So when, when the Bible is clenched in between all five, you're holding God's word. You're wielding the sword of the Spirit, right? Now what happens if I just try, God help me if this falls, what if I just try with one thumb, maybe? Not going to happen, can't hold the sword, right? Drop it constantly. What if I just try with maybe this one finger? Still can't do it. I'm not a good magician. What if I did it with two? I could probably do it with two. Maybe, maybe three eventually. I bet I could do it with four for sure. I could probably balance. I'm not going to hold on to it, right? Can't clench it with four. So what happens when circumstances come into my life and hit my hand? What happens? I drop the sword, right? So that if you, if you think of all four fingers and one thumb on the lines of hearing the word on your thumb, reading the word with your pointer finger, studying the word with your other finger, meditating the word with the next finger, and memorizing the word with the next finger, now you hold on to God's word. That's practical, right? I'll do it again because I know I don't have it in front of you. Hear the word, read the word, study the word, meditate the word, and memorize the word. When you do this, when you clench the sword of the Spirit in your hand that way, what do you do? You absolutely destroy the lies of Satan that have been laid up against you. According to Psalm 1, 1 through 3, the person who loves God's word is like a strong oak tree with deep roots and good fruit. According to Hebrews 4, Genesis 1, Psalm 119, according to that collection of verses, God's word is like a double-edged sword that cuts deep as it wounds and heals and strengthens. See, it is the word of God, by the word of God, that all things were brought into existence from what? Nothing. By the word of God that a person is able to walk in holiness and purity. Like, how can a book have this kind of power? That's the question that everyone around us is asking. How can a book have this kind of power? And the only answer for that, according to 2 Timothy 2 and 3, is that the Bible, the scriptures, are the very words of God himself breathed out by his very own spirit through imperfect men who recorded his words as they wrote. And many people want to diminish the truth and the power and the authority of God's word, especially today. 
or they make it into a mere book of human making, or they turn into a history lesson, or they turn into a list of moral laws to follow. But the Bible is trustworthy and true because it is what? The very words of the living God. These aren't words of dead men. This is the word of the living God. You might remember that when Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, what did he do? He twisted Old Testament passages, the current Bible of Jesus' time. Satan came to him and twisted specific Old Testament passages regarding what? Regarding the person and the work of Jesus himself. Can you imagine this? Satan facing off with Jesus and going, dude, you don't really know who you are. And you don't really know what you should do. You should do this. What was Jesus' response? Well, it wasn't to go pick up the latest self-help book. What Jesus did was he quoted God's word. He unleashed the sword of the Spirit with an absolute furious accuracy. And if this is Jesus' attitude, perfect God-man in the flesh, right? If this was Jesus' attitude towards the Scriptures, then how much more do you and I, imperfect and broken as we are, need to have the same attitude? Well, the call of this passage is to unleash the power of the sword of the Spirit in our lives. So many powerless Christians today because the word's not open in their life. A quote that I quote from Spurgeon all the time because I love Spurgeon less than I love Jesus and less than I love my wife and less than I love my kids for sure. The list can go on. I love Spurgeon. One of the things that he said was that our nose should have ink stains on, that, on them um, from having our nose in the scriptures so much. That's just it's a great picture of what a Christian life should look like, right? As I walk out this Christian life, my heart, my mind, my life, they're renewed, reoriented by the very words of the living God who gave himself away on a cross and left the tomb empty on the third day. See, God's word cannot be defeated, and God's word is never wrong. So be encouraged, friends, by this. Be encouraged. The sword of the Spirit has been placed in your hand, if you're a believer, again, by the nail-scarred hands of a Savior who died on a cross. Your Heavenly Father, His Word never fails, and it will never return void of the purpose for which it was intended for. So can you see how the reliability of God's Word, or vice versa, how the quote-unquote irreliability of God's Word could affect your actions? If you don't believe that God's word is reliable, what do you have to stand on? Your own word? Heaven forbid. My word? <laughs> I hope that's not why you're here. If it is, you're, you, it's hopeless. God's word is all we have to hang on to. Amen? You see how that would change your attitude? See how that would transform your actions? So when I put on the helmet of salvation in conclusion... I'll let you know I'm going to wrap this up shortly. When I put on the helmet of salvation, when my hand clings to the sword of the Spirit, my attitude is transformed. I now take a stand in the salvation that not I supply through my works. I take a stand in the salvation that Christ supplies to me. And I take a stand with the sword of the Spirit in my hand and the reliability of God's Word transforms my attitude from what? Defeat to victory, and despair to joy, and rebellion to obedience, 
The cross and the empty tomb of Jesus is where salvation is made available. Think about that. The cross and the empty tomb of Jesus is where salvation is made available. But the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus is also where the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, came in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. To do what? Not to be a cute little boy on Christmas, although Christmas is so beautiful, right? The point of Christmas is the cross and the empty tomb. That's where the Word of God is made visible. This is the Savior that we gather to worship. He gives us salvation, and He comes visibly to manifest Himself as a sacrificial king. Take a stand today. Take a stand in your salvation that Christ has provided to you. Take a stand with the sword of the Spirit in your hand. How do you do that? Take up a kneeled posture. Take up a kneeled posture under a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. That's where you find true rest. You won't find rest in your own performance. You will only find rest and power in Christ's performance at the cross and the empty tomb. This is where you'll see your attitude change. Amen? Let me pray. Father, as we wrap up our time together this morning, I pray, God, that you would just bring the picture of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross to bear our lives. Remind us once again that the message of the gospel is not about us and our performance, but it is about you and what you performed and accomplished at the cross. Father, I beg that you would come and do that work. Turn our hearts and our minds to you. Remind us that our minds can be protected by what you did at the cross. Remind us that our lives can be empowered by the very word of the living God as our hands clenched to the sword of the Spirit. Pray that you would do that work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.